take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this evening to Mark chapter 3. Looking at verses 22 through 30 of Mark chapter 3 this evening, the character of the kingdom. So last time we were together, we saw Jesus call and commission the twelve. And we saw how they were able not only to serve our Savior, but actually uh, to help him as well. We don't exactly know. I'm, I'm making a bit of an inference there. When the Bible says that Jesus' friends sought him and lay hold of him, saying he was beside himself, uh, I presume that these friends were uh, some of his disciples, uh, the, maybe the twelve, or perhaps not the twelve. Um, but we recognize through that that Jesus endured the fatigue of a very busy and demanding ministry. And as people thronged him and as the religious leaders were angry at him, there was more to be done than necessarily time and energy allowed, and Jesus needed friends. And that's what we talked about last week, the importance of friends. And as we've said at this point, chapter 3 is that chapter of controversy. Chapter 1 introduced Jesus' authority. Chapter 2 demonstrated Jesus' authority. And chapter 3 is the debate around Jesus' authority. Now, two weeks ago, we observed that the Pharisees conspired with the Herodians regarding that, how Jesus might be destroyed. Then last week, we saw very little about the Pharisees or Herodians themselves as we simply uh, focused in on the idea of, of Jesus and where he was in the ministry and the things that he was struggling with, the challenges that he had to meet as it related to that ministry. This week, we turn our eyes from the reaction of the Pharisees and, by extension, I suppose, the Herodians to another group of people called the scribes. So we pick up in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, where the Bible says this, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. And we're introduced to a group of scribes who had come down from Jerusalem. Recall that Mark's primary focus, as, at least in, the, in the, the first several chapters of the book, is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We saw Jesus baptized in Judea at the beginning of his ministry. And of course, uh, we follow Jesus' final days of his life, and that will be in and around Jerusalem. And we'll follow that in Mark uh, 9 through 16. So there will be plenty of time there in Judea. But the bulk of, of this, this first idea is not jumping uh, with Jesus back and forth from Judea to Galilee and Galilee to Judea, but rather simply uh, focusing upon his ministry there in Galilee. Now we understand from the other Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, that Jesus did, in fact, regularly go down to Judea. Several times a year, in fact, we recognize that the Old Testament law, uh, the law of Moses, commanded that men go to, to the temple three times per year. And so we would recognize that Jesus would have gone down for Passover. He maybe would have stayed until after Pentecost instead of coming down twice. And then he would have gone up for tabernacles as well to Jerusalem. We also know at least once in John, in, in John it is recorded that he was there during the Festival of Lights, which would have been around this time of year, the time of Hanukkah. And so we, we see that Jesus was regularly down in that area of Judea, but Mark certainly does not focus upon those things. So these scribes, however, they were from Judea. They would have been well familiar with Jesus' ministry and claims. And here we find that various scribes came down from Jerusalem to observe Jesus' ministry. We observe, however, that in regard to said ministry... Oh, let us just say that the scribes were not impressed. So we've seen Jesus call his 12. 
They have ministered unto him because he is exhausted. The exact way Jesus' friends described his current condition is that, in, uh, th- we, we saw um, in verse 21, he is beside himself. Now, as I described it last week, this observation is connected to the fact that Jesus was not able to get any food. He was perhaps in a sense of malnourishment or exhaustion. His friends then would see, they saw him in the crowd. They laid hold on him. They said he is beside himself. And more or less, we would believe that they kind of rescued him from the crowd that was around him, hoping to draw him away to a place where he could get some rest. But when the disciples stated this, he is beside himself meaning he is so exhausted he isn't thinking clearly, the scribes, it would seem, use this moment to retort that Jesus is not exhausted or out of sorts per se, that maybe the problem uh, with, with how Jesus is, is thinking or with, with how Jesus is acting, maybe uh, the, the, this idea of him being beside himself, maybe it is not that he is exhausted. Maybe it is instead that he is overcome by another sort. Rather, the whole character of Jesus should be characterized not as simply exhaustion in this moment, but that he is doing what he is doing by the prince of devils, by Beelzebub. Now, the name Beelzebub literally means Lord of the House. And it was a contemporary Hebrew name for the one that the Jews considered to be the chief demon the one that we call Satan or the devil. Here they call Beelzebub the prince of devils, and this is a good description of their understanding. And by this statement, they're directly asserting that the power and compulsion by which Jesus was casting out devils was Satan himself, ascribing the ministry of Christ to the work of Satan. Now, we would expect that the primary motivation for their charges was to confuse those who were listening. And so to lessen the impact of Jesus' ministry. Since, as we've already considered, the religious leaders in Israel were quickly coming to the conclusion that Jesus' ministry was a threat to them, a threat to their authority. But they could not deny the power and authority that Jesus had. So in, in that, they, they were not able to, to tell people they weren't seeing what they were seeing. They could not deny his works. So instead of denying his works... They felt they had to redirect the minds of the listeners to conclude that though Jesus' works were undeniable, the power by which he did them was not divine, but evil, was not good, but evil, was not God, but the devil. Now let's think through that a little bit together. As it relates to certain aspects of Jesus' ministry, certain miraculous manifestations, we recognize that there are, in fact, demonic powers that are able to affect such things, at least in part. We think of Moses before Pharaoh in Egypt, where the magicians of Egypt were able, at least for the first several plagues, to reproduce those powers that Moses was producing through the Lord as he was doing these signs and wonders before Pharaoh. And even today, there are spiritists, there are mediums, there are witches, there are warlocks and the like who are able to claim at least a measure of spiritual power through the darkness. But it was not the miracles that these scribes focused in upon, was it? It was not Jesus raising uh, the lame or, um, or, or healing the leper or uh, healing the man with a withered hand. These were not the things that they were focusing in on as they ascribed to Jesus demonic power. 
Instead, what they were focusing in on was him casting out devils. They claim that Jesus' capacity to cast out devils was compelled by Satan, not by God. And it is this claim that Jesus, that Jesus then immediately speaks to. That perhaps he was fatigued and hungry, but this claim that he cast out devils by the prince of devils, by Beelzebub, could not go unchallenged. So we read in verses 23 through 26. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. So Jesus calls these scribes to him. Presumably after his friends tried to clear him from the crowds in order to get him rest and nourishment. It is also possible that these are scattered events that weren't connected to one another, but uh, I'm, I'm connecting them for the sake of this narrative. If you disagree that they should be connected uh, between chapter, uh, verse 21 and 22, you know, certainly that's fine. It's not necessarily operative to the point. But Jesus, he responded to their claim that he cast out devils by the power of Satan. And so he asked them a question, and the question is this. How can Satan cast out Satan? From this, Jesus lays out a principle which gives us as readers a rare glimpse into the way the spiritual world operates. Jesus says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand and a house divided against itself cannot stand. To this end, if Satan rises up against himself and he becomes divided, his kingdom will fall. Now, we'll explain the importance of this in a little bit. But Jesus then gives a parable which helps them understand exactly why he is saying this. He says in verse 27, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Now, within this parable, Jesus poses the scenario of a person who is desiring to enter into the house of a strong man to take that strong man's goods. But the problem is that this man is, in fact, a strong man. And a strong man will fight for that which is his, and he can resist strongly. And so it will be very difficult to spoil his goods. Instead, Jesus says, if a man wants to enter into the house of a strong man and spoil that house, he must first bind that strong man. And once that strong man is bound, then that strong man is powerless. And once that strong man is powerless, then the, then the other will be free to spoil his goods. Now, we'll talk in a moment about what this parable means. But before we do so, we first need to remind ourselves what parables are and how it is we interpret them. Parables are a very specific form of teaching in the Bible that is often actually somewhat misunderstood. Parables are a fictional scenario which is shared in order to highlight a single direct lesson. Everything else in the parable, everything that is not the lesson itself, that is not the, the exact lesson that, that is intended to learn, everything there, it, it, it may or it may not be relevant to the meaning. It doesn't necessarily have a meaning. Everything is there to support the singular lesson that, that, that Jesus desires us to understand from the parable itself. And what I mean by this is that parables are not allegories. An allegory is a story where everything in the story has a direct representative to something in real life. So when you think of some, uh, a, a story like Pilgrim's Progress, 
Everybody that Pilgrim comes across in Pilgrim's Progress is allegorical. It represents something in real life, and as he interacts with that thing, it's supposed to teach us about interacting with, with whatever, you know, whoever the person is named or, or, or whatever it might be, the city that he's going to or the path that he's on. Everything has a meaning. That is an allegory. Parables are not allegories. In a parable, the, the surrounding details of the story may represent something, may have a meaning, or they may not. They may simply be there to put body to the lesson, to put a story that directs us to the lesson itself. Not everything in a parable has to have a spiritual analog. Not everything in a parable is supposed to mean something. Everything other than the lesson in a parable only exists to point us to the lesson. Now, if it exists more, and we're going to see one of those in a couple of weeks, when we see the parable of the seeds and the sower, there's going to be significantly more, uh, it carries more of an allegorical flavor. Each one of the, the, the parcels of ground that the seed falls on has a meaning. The seed itself has a meaning. The sower, in fact, has a meaning but it is still intended to draw the hearts of the hearers unto a singular idea, a singular purpose, and that purpose is what we want to focus in on. So unless the one giving the parable explicitly states other things have meaning, which Jesus will do in the parable of the seeds and the sower, we should be careful that we don't spend too much time trying to figure out what each thing in a parable represents. Trying to uh, work our way into some sort of consistent representative of each element of the parable. And this is a really good parable for us to see that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. This doesn't mean, again, that parables cannot teach other things, nor does it mean that we cannot find things outside of the point of the parable um, that can serve valuable spiritual purposes and have valuable meanings. But what we want to be careful not to do is we don't want to allow first the side point of a parable to override the main point. And we don't want to allow side interpretations to, to cause us to lose focus on what we're supposed to be focused on. And perhaps the best example of one of the, the, the areas where we do this or a parable within which we do this is the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In that parable, Jesus speaks of a man who claims his portion of the inheritance. He's the younger son of a father. And he says, Father, give me my portion of the inheritance. And the father gives him his inheritance. And he goes and he spends that inheritance on riotous living. And then he ends up living, uh, losing all of his inheritance, all of it, because he spent it all on riotous living. And he ends up living in a pig pen, begging for the leftover scraps from the pigs. And as he's sitting there in the mud, the Bible says one day he came to himself and he realizes that even his father's servants are better cared for than he is. And then he humbles himself and he returns to his father with the intention of asking his father if he may but become one of his humble servants. And he does this. He returns to his father and he states to his father that he is no longer worthy to be called his son and he requests simply to be hired on as a servant. And of course, you know the parable. The father would have none of that. The father had been looking for his son and saw him a long way off. And the father ran to him and embraced him and, 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 and cried over him and he gladly takes his son back. He slays the fatted calf to celebrate. He invites all of their friends to celebrate, saying, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. And when you hear this parable, this is what you hear. 
You'll hear the preacher vigorously focus upon the son's sin, the son's repentance, the father's love. You will hear all, all of these things that, that encapsulate the parable of the prodigal son, the son that was lost and is found, that there's a way to come to the Savior. There's a way to come back to the Savior if you have wandered away. And all of those things are wonderful lessons that are truly indicative of the character of our, of our Lord and Savior. But none of that is actually what the parable is about. The parable is not actually about the younger son, the prodigal son. See, right before this parable, the Pharisees had just complained to Jesus that he received sinners. This man receiveth sinners. And the parable doesn't actually end when the prodigal son returns, does it? Instead, we find that the older son, who never left his father, is bitter at the father's willingness to receive his brother back. And he complains. He is out pouting in the field while they're all in uh, celebrating around the fatted calf. And his father comes out to him and says, why are you out here pouting? My, my, my paraphrase there. And he complains. He says, father, I didn't waste my inheritance. And yet you've never slain a fatted calf for me. You never threw a party for me. I've never left you. I've stayed here. I've stayed loyal. And the, the father replies and he says, Son, you're the inheritor of all that I have. One day all of these things will be yours. But it is good that we rejoice over one who was lost and now is found. And when we look in the context, that's actually the point of the parable. The lesson of the parable was Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. And he was telling them, it is good that you should rejoice when a sinner comes to repentance. It is good that you should rejoice that I am receiving sinners who have repented. Why are you complaining? Why are you pouting that I am receiving sinners? It is a good thing that I am receiving sinners. The Pharisees are the older son. They never wandered away from the law. And yet, though they had not wandered away from the law, whose heart was with the father? It was not that older son who was out in the field pouting. He did not share his father's heart. He was not aligned with his father's heart. He had never left in person, but he had left in heart. But that younger son, he walked away, but he came back and he aligned his heart with his father. And on that day, it was the younger son. It was the one who had wandered and returned whose heart was aligned with the father, not the older son. That was the point of the parable. That was the lesson of the parable. It is actually not a parable of a prodigal son. It is the parable of the older son. But that's not what we think of when we think of that parable. Now, we can draw those other lessons, right? The all of the lessons about the prodigal son and the father's love and the desire to return and all of those things, those are all valid lessons. But Jesus only put that in place so that we could see the parallel, see the connection between those who were sinners who were coming to Jesus so that we could understand what Jesus is saying about the older son and the Pharisees who were complaining that this man receiveth sinners. And so we see this idea that we want to be careful. I say this 
to help us understand parables. Now, in the parable of the prodigal son, as we saw, it's very possible to spiritualize all of that supporting material and to draw other biblically valid lessons. But as we step into this parable in Mark chapter 3, verse 27, the parable of the strong man, the opposite is actually true. In this parable, if you were to try to spiritualize everything, you're only going to get confused. And you're going to, and if you if you successfully work it into biblical terms, you're probably going to find yourself in heresy. Because it just does not work to try to fit this parable into an allegorical type of mindset. Jesus is giving the picture of a man who desires to spoil the house of a strong man. And within the context of Jesus casting out demons, this strong man must be Satan. Recall that the context is that these scribes look at Jesus and say, this man is casting out devils by the prince of devils, by Beelzebub. And then Jesus gives this parable. In this parable, as Jesus says that a, a man cannot spoil the house of a strong man until that strong man be bound, the strong man here must be Satan, who has control over the hearts and minds of many men and women. And the one who intends to spoil the house then would be Jesus. Now, it doesn't work to simply carry that picture into the spiritual, does it? In, terms, in spiritual terms, we know that Jesus is the king of kings that every soul is his by right, that it is not only God's higher purpose and desire for mankind's volitional love by which man is able to even defy God's will. So that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we find the Bible tell us that there's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the idea here that, that as Jesus speaks of the strong man, Satan being the strong man, Jesus being the one to spoil the strong man's house, that doesn't necessarily connect properly to things as they exist. Recall what we talked about last week. A part of Jesus being absolutely exhausted was that anywhere Jesus was going, people with demons that were demonically possessed were falling down on their faces in front of Jesus, confessing him to be the son of God. So these demons knew Jesus' authority here. Furthermore, when we think of the idea of a man entering into another man's house and spoiling his goods, it is not common that we regard the spoiler as the good guy, right? Although there are notable exceptions to this principle. But in this parable where Jesus is responding to the claim that he is casting out devils in the power of Satan himself, it is apparent that the strong man is Satan and that the goods of his house would be the minds and the hearts of those who are possessed and Jesus then here would be the spoiler. And we can jump through lots of spiritual hoops that would be necessary to attempt to make all of that fit into Jesus and into Satan. How is it that Jesus could not just spoil the house of the devil? Why would Jesus have to bind the devil first? Uh, he must first bind the devil because otherwise the devil is too powerful. And, and then Jesus takes what is the devil's, uh, but it really wasn't ever the devil's anyway. And, and things just get kind of messy. But in a parable, we don't really need to do all of that. We don't need to jump through all those hoops because the parable is not focused upon the story. The parable is focused upon the point. And the point is this, that the guy spoiling the house of the strong man is not going to do it through the strong man. If the guy spoiling the house of the strong man was going to do it through the strong man, then the strong man would not, then he would not be spoiling the strong man's goods. He would be receiving the strong man's goods. If, if 
If Jesus was on the devil's team, in other words, Jesus would not need to bind the strong man to take the stuff out of the house. The strong man would give it to him because they're on the same team. And that's the idea here. The only reason why the house would need to be spoiled is because the strong man was holding on to his house and to his goods. So he needed to be bound in order that they could be taken from him. And as this connects to Jesus' ministries, throughout the instances of Jesus casting out devils, certain things became quite apparent. It is apparent that the devils recognized his authority but were not happy that he was there. It's apparent that the devils were resistant to being cast out and railed against Jesus for it. It is apparent that the people are delivered from that bondage when Jesus accomplishes his work in their hearts. None of this is consistent with a man who is on the side of the strong man. This is only consistent with the man who must first bind the strong man and then spoil his house. Take the strong man's goods without the strong man's permission. And this is why Jesus commanded the demons to be silent. This is why Jesus denied the demons their prize when they fought against his authority. And this was Jesus' response to them. But this response also came with a pretty dramatic warning. Because it was one thing for them to slander Jesus. You and I might say Jesus didn't take that particularly personally as they slandered him and tried to say that he was casting out demons through the father of demons or through the prince of demons. But it was another thing to credit the power that Jesus exercised through the Holy Spirit of God, which was evident from the day that he was baptized and the Spirit of God descended upon him in the bodily form of a dove. It was another thing to credit the power of the Holy Spirit of God to Satan's power. That's another thing altogether. It was one thing to reject the testimony of Christ's deeds and actions. It was another thing to reject the testimony of the Spirit of God. And this is what Jesus warns in verses 28 through 30. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they saith, he hath an unclean spirit. So Jesus pronounces a verily, which was one of Christ's ways to assert the clarity and importance of the statements that he was about to make. Rooted in an indelible truth, which means men should listen closely because they are going to be held accountable for it. And Jesus' verily is that all sins shall be forgiven men, with the exception of one. There is one sin that is written into the heavens for which men cannot be given forgiveness. And that sin is to blaspheme the Holy Ghost. This man will never have forgiveness. But in that state of blasphemy, he is in danger of eternal damnation. Now notice the last verse here. Verse 30, and then we'll talk about what it means. Verse 30 makes it clear that this warning and parable were given in direct context of them saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit, that Jesus cast, was casting out devils in the power of Satan himself, or that Jesus was in fact possessed by Satan as he was doing this work. 
So there's no question that this warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit is given in the context of the work that Jesus had done in the lives of these men and women whom he had delivered from their demons. Now, this warning about an unforgivable sin is one which has been deeply understood throughout the years. And it's not actually particularly complicated. It only asks us to understand what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. And that's what we're going to talk about in the final minutes of our time this evening. So let's apply this evening. And I want to apply through three points. Point number one this evening as we think through this passage. Satan's kingdom is not a divided kingdom just as God's kingdom is not a divided kingdom. So we'll get to the, the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in our third point. But this first point, Satan's kingdom is not a divided kingdom, just as God's kingdom is not a divided kingdom. This first point exhorts us to think about what Jesus' words tell us about the way that things work in the spirit realm. I spoke to a man some years ago who described his perception of the spirit realm as a group of, of demonic anarchists that each one was operating uh, only for themselves. They were vying even against one another, that demons would vie against one another. He says that's how it happens among the demons of this earth, among politicians and wicked men. They are all uh, working in their own self-interests and they only work together to the extent that they can get what they want out of it and then they're more than happy to backstab or to betray. And so he, that's how he believed he saw the spirit realm, that they were effectively, that demons were effectively anarchists, each working for their own, their own um, purposes and their own agenda. And he imagined this again because this is how evil men work. A man does something evil and he is successful and he gathers around him a multitude of other evil men, but at some point either he must destroy them or they will destroy him and they cannot trust each other and they eventually destroy each other because the hallmark of evil is selfishness and pride. But I believe that Jesus' parable and teaching here denies this reality. Yes, evil humans struggle to unite because they are selfish and proud and wicked. But in the heavenlies, I believe what Jesus says here makes it somewhat clear that demons are quite united. That they are quite united under Satan's kingdom, quite united under Satan's direction. Satan has a kingdom which is not every devil for himself, but rather it would seem to be a regulated kingdom that is intentional and ordered. In our world, we can often see this order. And we conspiratorially credit evil men with having grand plans and playing the long game for the, for the souls of men. But, you know, evil has never actually been successful at this because evil men will always eventually prioritize themselves above any person or cause. But we can see those trends, things happening over the course of hundreds of years, slow change, slow drift from some evil man 100 years ago writing about what he wanted to see happen. And now we see those things coming to fruition. And we say, wow, these evil men are really organized. Wow, they've really had a plan. Wow, they have enacted their plan with surgical precision within this world. And I think that when we say such things, we actually give those men and those institutions too much credit. I believe that where we actually see the conspiracy, where we actually see the organization, where we actually see the order would be in the demonic realm that the demons that are whispering in the ears of these evil men from generation to generation, they have a plan. All these men, men are just self-serving men looking for power, looking for money, looking for, for, for honor, looking for glory. And they are being used by Satan and his minions 
to bring about their purposes, which are in fact organized, which are in fact directed, which are in fact orderly. And so my first thought is to help us orient ourselves properly to the manner within Satan's kingdom works out itself in this world. I believe that Satan's kingdom is not a divided kingdom. And why do I believe this? Because Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so I do not believe Satan's kingdom is divided because it has stood for these years. And it will stand until Jesus Christ himself destroys that kingdom. Point number two, divided kingdoms inevitably fall. And this is the point that I want to make practically. No kingdom or house that is divided against itself can stand. Jesus used this point to help us understand, I believe, that Satan's kingdom is not divided. That Satan would not cast out uh, demons through his own power because in doing so he would divide himself against his own kingdom and that would cause that kingdom to crumble and that is not what Satan is about. But Jesus does say that a house or a kingdom divided against itself will fall. If you want any house or you want any kingdom to stand, it doesn't always need to agree, but it certainly can be working in opposition to itself. And this is a warning which is most evidently apparent in our country today, Christian. We happen to live in a Western world, in a, in, in, in a, in a nation, the United States of America. We live in a kingdom divided. We've talked on Tuesday nights about the dramatic difference in worldviews that our nation operates within. Our nation is made up of two people groups. And that people groups is not defined by male and female. It's not defined by the color of their skin. It's not defined by their economic outlook. It is not the haves and the have-nots. It is not the blacks versus the whites. It is not the males versus the females. The two people groups that we have are those that operate under a biblical worldview and those that operate under a humanistic worldview. Those whose worldview is founded upon biblical truth and those whose worldview is founded upon the lies of the devil. And due to our electoral system, every certain number of years, we go to the ballot box and we try to elect those who might contend for our worldview within the halls of power. And this is a fairly new development in the country. We've always had disagreements but only one other time was there a fundamental disparity of worldviews within this country. And that was the time just before the Civil War. And today, I don't predict or warn about anything in particular except to say this. We in the United States of America are a kingdom divided. And a kingdom divided must either unite or it will fall. The more practical exhortation in this regard, however, is about things closer to home. Let's talk about the church. Let's talk about family. The same principle applies, Christian, to the church and to the family as it does to the kingdom. Jesus didn't just use the, the kingdom. He said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. He also said a, heist, a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? It's not a problem. In fact, it's almost always an asset to have within families and churches different perspectives, different opinions, different abilities, different capabilities, different experiences. But this is not the same as having a different trajectory. 
a different direction in families or in churches. A church of believers can disagree and yet be absolutely unified in the faith. This is different from a church which contains a mixture of believers and unbelievers. That is a church that is divided. That is a church that cannot stand. A church of those who believe in biblical authority can disagree about what any given passage means. We all believe that the Bible is the final authority. We all believe that the Bible is true, but we have a disagreement about how to interpret a particular passage of Scripture. We can get along just fine in that, in that context. But this is different from a church which contains some people who trust biblical authority and some who reject biblical authority. That is a church divided, and that church cannot stand. A home can function fine with a husband and wife who see things differently. But this is different from a home where the husband has no love or the wife has no submission, where they are not walking in the same direction, where they do not walk together, together in agreement. That is a divided home and that divided home cannot stand. And so you and I are exhorted in our own lives to ensure that we are not a church divided, that we are not a house divided. And to whatever extent we might be, to be proactive in fixing it before a house that is divided falls. Because Jesus says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided will fall. So point number one. Satan's kingdom is not a kingdom divided, just as God's kingdom is not a kingdom divided. Point number two, a divided kingdom will inevitably fall. A divided church will inevitably fall. A divided house will inevitably fall. Point number three, there is a single and unambiguous unforgivable sin. We spend the rest of our time, finally, thinking through this oft misunderstood idea of the unforgivable sin. People get confused by this because we acknowledge that Jesus bore on the cross all the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 tells us this plainly. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Jesus has forgiven all sin, if all sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, if the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all sin, how can it be then that there is an unforgivable sin? And the answer, as I said before, is actually not that complicated. It takes only aligning ourselves with a proper perspective on what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not that a person says in an audible voice or in their heart that they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I've seen that before from various people, atheists, uh, people who have, who have come out of some sort of uh, Christian family where they, in, in, in an effort to be particularly rebellious on any given day, say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And they uh, do so as a means by which to reflect confidence that they don't believe in the Holy Spirit because they gladly and openly blaspheme Him uh, without any qualms in their, in their own hearts over it. But that's not the idea here of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Instead, let's filter Jesus' warning here. And we're going to filter it first through what was happening on that day. And then second, we broaden that out to what Jesus has taught us about the nature and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world to understand what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. So in the day that Jesus was talking here in Mark chapter 3, he, Jesus was exercising power over demons and those demons were being cast out of men. 
And on that day in Mark chapter 3, the scribes took that demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ and they directly rejected it, attributing the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God and his power to the power and testimony of the devil. So that these men saw the power of the Spirit and they labeled it the power of the devil. And this was not just a mistaken association. This was a blatant rejection of the testimony of the Spirit of God. And when Jesus saw this, he warned them that those who blaspheme the Spirit of God in this way, by overtly rejecting his power and his testimony before their eyes and in their hearts, would be in danger of eternal damnation because such a thing would not be forgiven should they remain in this state until the day of judgment. So then the working concept of what Jesus is warning about here is that of a danger, the danger that is associated with rejecting the testimony of the Spirit of God. This is what the scribes were doing on that day. They were rejecting the testimony, the clear and unambiguous testimony of the Spirit of God, and they were rejecting it by attributing the testimony of the Spirit of God to Satan himself. This is the idea of blaspheming him as Jesus described it in Mark chapter 3. That is the context of what was happening in Mark 3, that then Jesus said, this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So then we ask the question, if that's what it meant in that day, in Mark 3, what does it mean today? What is blaspheming the Spirit of God today? And in order to understand this, we need to spend some time thinking about what the testimony of the Spirit looks like since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it was the rejection of the testimony of the Spirit of God through the power that Jesus was wielding, that then Jesus said, this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, well, then we ask the question, what, does, what is the testimony of the Spirit of God today? What does it look like today? And much of that is taught to us in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18, we read this. Jesus speaking, he says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So we read the record of the final hours of Jesus' life, beginning actually in John 13. In this chapter, the final Passover meal is over. In John 13, verse 17, record a very intimate teaching time between Jesus and his disciples that took place between the end of the Passover and Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It would be in John 14 that Jesus would introduce his disciples to the concept that is called the Comforter, capital C. Jesus says here in John 14, verses 16 through 18, that he is going to depart because he's about to be killed and that the Father would then give them another comforter who would abide with them forever. Jesus then clarified that this comforter would be the spirit of truth whom the world could not receive because it did not know him, but that the spirit of truth would dwell in them and would comfort them in his absence. Now, over the next chapters, Jesus would continue to teach about the ministry of this comforter, both in those who believe and also among those who do not. 
So we read in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus promises at the end of his great chapter on the vine and the branches that the comforter would be sent to his followers from the Father. Called again the spirit of truth proceeding from the Father, which would testify of Christ and thus enable them to also testify of Christ as well. Thus the spirit of truth which compelled Jesus' ministry would likewise compel their own ministry so that they too would minister in the Spirit's power just as Jesus ministered in the Spirit's power. Now connect this with me. Jesus said that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit of God. The power of the Spirit of God was the thing that in that day the scribes were rejecting that Jesus then said, this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 15 that the disciples would receive this same Spirit and that they too would minister in the power of the Spirit of God just as Jesus did. Jesus warns the scribes that they can be forgiven all blasphemies against him, but not a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. And so here in John chapter 14 and 15, Jesus tells us that we too carry that Spirit's power, that he would testify in us and he would testify through us just as he testified in and through Jesus. Now let's continue. As we work into John chapter 16, Jesus then reveals another characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Verses 7 through 14, we read this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that, he, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. As we step into John 16, we find Jesus tell us something new about the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Jesus says that it is expedient that he would go away because when he goes away, then the Comforter will come. And when he comes, the Bible says he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he explains then what this means, that the world will be reproved of the sin that they do not believe in Christ that the world will be reproved of Christ's righteousness revealed in his resurrection from the dead, and that the world will be reproved of their inevitable judgment if they are not saved from their sin and enter into Christ's righteousness because they are then following the prince of the world, Satan, who will be judged. In this, we find an important statement of the ministry and testimony of the Holy Spirit in the world. The Holy Spirit which we've already established in John 15 that would be rooted in the ministry of Christ's believers, his followers. This Holy Spirit would testify to the hearts of every man that they are unbelievers, that if they do not submit themselves to the truth of God's, uh, of, of God's word and of Jesus' righteousness, then they will face the eternal judgment of hellfire that comes from rejecting that truth. In other words, 
the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would be to testify to the hearts of every man that they are in a state of sin through unbelief and that they need to be saved. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to men. Jesus then goes on to say that when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Ghost, he would guide those who do believe into all truth and that he would not speak of himself, but he would speak of the things of Christ so that he would then glorify the Son and not himself. Now let's put all of this together. Jesus told the scribes in Mark chapter 3 that they would be forgiven all blasphemies, even against him as the Son, except for the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The record of Mark chapter 3 verse 30 tells us explicitly that Jesus said that this was because of their claim that Jesus had an unclean spirit, meaning they claimed that the power that Jesus used to cast out demons was satanic power, thus rejecting the testimony of the Spirit of God through Jesus's power and attributing it to Satan and so blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. To this end, we believe to, that to blaspheme the Spirit of God is to reject the testimony of the Spirit of God. In John chapters 14 through 16, then, Jesus teaches us that the Holy Ghost is also called the Comforter or the Spirit of Truth. And John chapter 16, verses 7 through 14 states specifically that the testimony of the Spirit of God in this world is that Jesus is righteous, that men are naturally condemned in judgment, and that the only way to be saved from this judgment is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So that the great sin for which men will experience eternal damnation is the sin of unbelief, as Jesus taught in, chapter three, in John chapter 3, verse 18. That verse says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Men do not burn in hell for their sins. All manner of blasphemy is forgiven men by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Blasphemy against the Son, blasphemy against the Father, blasphemy against the image of God in man. One blasphemy alone is unforgivable. And that is blasphemy against the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God. And what is the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God? It is the testimony of the great sin of unbelief. By which a man must accept Jesus Christ's righteousness on his behalf or else he is in danger of eternal damnation. So then the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And when we ask what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit looks like, we answer from Mark 3 that it looks like rejecting the testimony of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men. And when we ask then what is the testimony of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men, well, in Jesus' day in Mark chapter 3, it was Jesus wielding the power to cast out demons. But in the New Testament economy, Jesus makes it very clear that the testimony of the Spirit in the hearts of men is the testimony of the gospel through the Holy Spirit of God. So that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God is to reject the gospel. That is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. To refuse to believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, to trust in yourself, to trust in your works, to trust in your church, to trust in your efforts, to trust in your family, to trust in your pastor, rather than in the finished work of Jesus Christ, is to reject the testimony of the gospel and thus to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. And on the day of judgment, there will be only one sin for which the Father will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There will be only one sin for which he will hear, you will hear those words, guilty, 
and that sin will be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, namely that you have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. This is the unforgivable sin. When the books are opened, when men stand before God, and men's works are judged by God, and all of those works will redound to reward or loss, and then there's another book opened, and that book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the names that are written in that book are the names of those who submitted themselves to the testimony of the Holy Ghost. And those whose names are not written in the book of life are not in the book of life because they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God by not believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And whatsoever names were not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. And this was Christ's warning on that day that the scribes would not make the mistake of rejecting the testimony of the Spirit of God before their eyes. And so in doing so, blaspheme the Holy Ghost. That instead they would release their selfishness and their pride, yield in belief to that testimony of Christ, by which any man, if he will do so, will be saved from eternal damnation. And so we asked three, we had three points this evening. First, we learn that Satan's kingdom is not a divided kingdom. Second, we are reminded that a kingdom divided against itself will not stand, nor will a church, nor will a house, a family. And finally, we learn of this single, unambiguous, unforgivable sin, one who does not place their full faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.